I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? I have a definition of genius, and I'm certainly not a genius. I think a genius is a person who changes the world, uh, who 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 is so innovative um, that they come up with ideas that other people embrace, and as a result of that engagement with other people and that change, the world heads in a new direction. Professor Craig Wright, creator of Yale University's popular Genius Course, explores what we can learn from brilliant minds that have changed the world. Einstein, Beethoven, Picasso, Jobs. The word genius evokes these iconic figures whose cultural contributions have irreversibly shaped society. Yet Beethoven could not multiply. Picasso couldn't pass a fourth grade math test. And Jobs left high school with a 2.65 GPA. What does this say about our metrics for measuring success and achievement today? Professor Wright has devoted more than two decades to exploring these questions and probing the nature of this term, which is deeply embedded in our culture. In The Hidden Habits of Genius, he reveals what we can learn from the lives of those we have dubbed as geniuses, past and present, and looks at the 14 key traits of genius, from curiosity to creative maladjustment to obsession. Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months. And that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume, but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching, so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your culture connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your culture connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. For all the coffee lovers out there, listen up. I'm crazy about the coffee I fuel my body with, and that's why I'm always grabbing a bottle of super coffee from Key to Life. Super Coffee has something to satisfy every coffee drinker's needs. Check out their brand new pods for the quick pick-me-up that are filled with vitamins and antioxidants. Before every podcast, I fill up on their Super Espresso, and my wife and I are borderline obsessed with their plant-based Coconut Mocha Super Coffee Cold Brew, which has 10 grams of protein, no added sugar, and is keto-friendly. I love the coffee and the three brothers so much that started this company. That's why I became an early investor. There's a reason they just got ranked number 18 on Inc. 5000's fastest-growing companies. So if you want to check out what they've got going on, head to drinksupercoffee.com and see what everyone's talking about. Craig, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing fine. Thank you very much, Sean, for inviting me. It's going to be fun. We're going to have a good time. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun exploring a lot of things that I'm innately curious about. But before we hit on geniuses and all of your work, I'm really intrigued by, did you know what you wanted to do your entire life? Or is this something you discovered later in life? <laughs> oh, wow. Life is, life is, life is wonderful. Um, I started out, you'll never believe this, Sean. When I was age 18, I could accept one of two scholarships. I could take a golf scholarship to the University of Maryland, or I could take a scholarship, a lesser scholarship, to the Eastman School of Music to be a class, trained to be a classical uh, concert pianist. Um, I declined the golf scholarship, though I really love to play golf. Uh, I declined it because other kids, even at age 18, were beating me. And I figured, well, if I'm already losing to them, I'm not going to make much money at this. So off I went to the Eastman School of Music, which is really hard to get into. It's like Juilliard and Curtis. And and I was playing competitions against the best in Washington, D.C. at that point. Um, uh, and I went there and I graduated from there, uh, but I w- learned one thing there that I had very little musical talent. <laughs> I had a lot of industry. I worked very hard. I was given the fine pianist to practice on the best teachers in Washington, DC. And then at Eastman, um, in Rochester, New York, but, um, lo and behold, I didn't have a great musical memory and I didn't have perfect pitch. I was lacking some of the essential gifts that are needed to make a, a, a first rate creative musician. So uh, there was this mantra going around music conservatories. If you can't create, you perform. If you can't perform, you teach. So I said to myself, well, maybe I'll be a teacher. I'll be a teacher in colleges because they seem pretty neat. Uh, um, a good place to be, interesting place to be. So off I went to Harvard to get a PhD in, in what's called musicology, the sort of history of music. And that was fun. And I became, of all things, a medieval musicologist, working with medieval music, which required me to go to Europe and live in monasteries for a period of time. And no kidding, I, I did that, you know, poverty, chastity, and obedience. Well, I wasn't really, I was having some trouble with some of those, shall we say. So that wasn't going to work out so well for me. I didn't, I didn't uh, just sign up to be a Benedictine monk, although they were very gracious and, and would always welcome me. And I would go through the rituals and go to all the services and study the manuscripts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, eventually, I got a job teaching at Yale. Um, and that was really cool because here's the deal. If you're a college professor and you get tenure, wow, that's a really great job. Uh, first of all, you have to work very hard as a young person. You re- I'm convinced, thinking about things, that the most critical decades in your life are the 20s and 30s. Uh, the uh, 20s may be the most critical in terms of getting out there and getting ahead in your profession. 30s are the most pressure packed because you've got your own profession that you're responsible for and you've got domestic considerations. If you have a partner, if you have offspring that you're dealing with, that's really hard to do all of that at once. But once, if you can be in a university situation, get tenure, then you're given something of a carte blanche. All presumably you're there to do what you were hired to do. But I didn't, I got bored with what I was hired to do. I woke up one day and said, what's new in the Middle Ages? <laughs> so, so I started playing with somebody called Mozart and he turned out to be very, very fascinating. And and then I went on, I said, well, there's more than music here. Why don't I, this guy's really very interesting, got interested in Leonardo da Vinci. I'm going to start a course on um, genius here. 
well, wait a minute, we don't have any courses on genius in the Department of Music or the School of Music. You, you're going to have to go somewhere else to do this. So I started doing it in the humanities program. And I did that for a while. And then as I was doing that, and that was fascinating. And I ditched all the courses that I was hired to, to teach and just did the genius class and one basic music class. Then I got very interested in online education. And I am proud to say that I actually taught Yale's first online course. This was 10 years ago. And it was a struggle. Uh, and they said, well, this guy's interested in this online education will make him academic director of online education at Yale. Well, that sounded very impressive. The only thing was I knew very little about this, but it sounded like a really cool thing to explore. And it was. Um, and we were doing all kinds of weird um, uh, tests and things. Could we link together? This was amazing. All across the campus, eight people at once on one screen and see each other. And it all seems so primitive now, but that's what we were doing. Um, and and it was a battle because the faculty, of course, thought, well, online, that's the kiss of death. That's going to kill our whole, entire teaching profession. If we could, if we have bring efficiency to this particular marketplace, we'll all be out of business. So um, it was a battle. I remember going to faculty meetings and being pilloried by people that thought this was uh, the forecast of doomsday. Um, but uh, lo and behold, over time, you know, things uh, things change, and you need some you need innovation from time to time. So how I got to where I got, I think, was initially having doors close uh, and uh, being forced to go in different directions. Eventually, I got to a place by working hard where doors began to open and I could head in a number of directions and I would head in a particular direction and then lo and behold other doors would open wow that's really interesting over there what would happen if we did that and go into that door and it's still going on I mean I've written a, a, a book here called the hidden habits of genius now I'm supposed to be writing books on medieval musicology um, so how does this happen because I started doing academic books and realizing, hey, a bestseller here is a thousand copies. You know that university presses, they're ecstatic if they sell a thousand copies. You know, Harper Collins is throwing a thousand copies in the gutter every, every second. Um, so uh, you realize, well, this is just so limited. Could there not be more to life than this? So then I started doing textbooks. Well, that's that's good, but you still have to write the textbook definition uh, or the public doesn't want that. So what happens if you do a trade book? <clears throat> well, that has the capacity of reaching hundreds of thousands. That's very exciting. And then you learn things about that because you learn, hey, you know what? Nobody's going to talk to you unless you have an agent. Me, a Yale professor, why do I need an agent in Manhattan? Well, you've got to have it because they, they won't read your manuscript. So on and on it goes. So I'm a Yale professor. Everybody will love what I do. Um, how do you feel after you get about 12 or 13 rejection notices from various publishers? Well, that's a learning experience too. But you learn as you go through all of this. You learn about marketing, uh, publishing publicity, you learn about podcasts, um, and on it goes. Um, so it's all, for me, once a door opens, it's just a question of that's interesting. Let's go over there and find out what's over there. Uh, that will open up new doors. There's no wrong here. There's no decision that you make in a way that, that you really regret, because even the ones that seem unpleasant at the time, you learn a great deal from.
Yeah, I, I would love exploring this curiosity, but I'm also really interested about just overall learning and skill development because early on, it seems like you were pretty good at golf, pretty good at music, and then you have to have right. a somewhat innate ability in terms of the classroom because of the schools you were getting into. So what do you think you did early on just to develop your skills? I just kept trying and trying different sorts of things. For example, you say, well, you must have been pretty good. Yep, I'm Captain B+, plus. I'm Captain A-, minus. okay? Um, I was... I was pretty good at golf, but but not really great. I mean, like the really fine players, and we could go into the tech, technical aspects of that. I was pretty good at music, but not because I really had any gift. I have a sister who has a absolute pitch. I had an uncle who had an absolute pitch, and he was a professional composer in New York at Hunter. Um, so it's floating around, but that gene passed in, in my uh, gene pool there, but that gene passed me. I didn't get any any of that. And you need that if you want to, to operate at the highest level in terms of music. Um, as to what I'm good at, I think what I found out over the years is what I am good at is taking complex issues, uh, perhaps because I can't do it. Uh, innately or genetically. I have to sit there and analyze what the heck is going on? How can that person do this and I can't do it? What is that person doing? I am forced because I can't do it innately or genetically to analyze a situation and then extrapolate what is going on and explain that in simple everyday terms to the average educated reader or listener mm -hmm. or student. I think that's what I'm good, good at, distilling the essence of complex phenomena down to simple principles. Well, that's the true spark of genius, isn't it? I, get, I think in the sciences, it is. It is. But, but boy, I'm no genius. No kidding. <laughs> I told my kids, I have four kids and now seven, seven grandchildren. I told my kids, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book on genius. Now each one of them, what? what? <laughs> Let's have a reality check here. You, 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 you're a plotter. You're, you're, you're no genius. And they're, they're absolutely right. Uh, I'm not a genius. I'm not representing myself as being a genius. It's uh, having a, uh, I, I don't know. Um, I, I have a definition of genius and I'm certainly not a genius. I think a genius is a person who changes the world, uh, who, who, who is so innovative um, that they come up with ideas that other people embrace and as a result of that engagement with other people and that change the world heads in a new direction and uh, much I'd be delighted to think so but I'd be delusional to say that I'm in any way changing the world <laughs> no, no no believe me we're going to dive a lot into into genius but I would love to know about your distillation process and this could be a bit of a nuance or abstract question but when you come across a new topic a new person and you're sitting there thinking it through, do you have a specific process for that? Is it a journaling process or are you just sitting there with your thoughts? That's, a, that's a, you know, funny, uh, Sean, nobody's ever asked me that question. I'm, I'm not really, I've never really thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> Oops, never thought about that one. Um, uh, first of all, the first thing that happens when I get something new, and usually I get something new by in. It, it, it's usually through a book, although it could be a video or audio format as you have here with your podcast. It could be a really good uh, uh, Netflix show or documentary or whatever ever it, it, it could be. So first thing I do when I encounter something I think is going to interest me, I get very excited. It makes me happy.
there's joy here. I'm going to learn something. Um, and, and that's, that's really uh, ex exciting. But let's just say that my normal process is to order a book, as I did this morning. Actually, I ordered a book with that uh, gentleman that appeared on your show, Matt Ridley. Is that the mm -hmm. fellow's yeah. name? Uh, yeah, yeah, Matt Ridley. He's the author of quite a few books, uh, The Evolution yeah. of Everything. He just, yeah. His recent one's about innovation and, and how yeah. it spreads so, out. So I ordered the, mo the most recent one because there seemed to be some overlap with what he was doing, what I'm interested in. So I'm, I'm waiting to get that, and it will arrive tomorrow. Uh, courtesy of this hugely innovative genius, Jeff Bezos. Um, so that will come and I will start to read it uh, and I will start to think about it. The first thing I do is when I get the book, the next thing I do is reach for a pencil because I'm, or a pen, because I'm very old school in this way. I will sit with a book and I will underline and I will think about it. And I'm a very slow reader. I'll think about the sentences. I'll think about the ideas and I will write in the margin. I will underline circle and write in the margin points to be remembered or disagreements with that particular line. So it is a dialogue. It's a conversation with me and an authority figure. And that's one of, in, in my book there, Hidden Habits of Genius, one of the things I keep banging on is be a contrarian. Uh, think backwards, um, uh, uh, argue, be, be argumentative. And that's in a way something I've learned with my teaching over the years that has evolved enormously from when I started as a modus operandi and where I ended up and continue to, to teach today. So that that's a work in progress, Sean. I got to think more carefully about what it is that I'm doing as I'm doing it. Uh, I, I haven't really thought about that. I'll try to do better next time. No, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good start when you're able to argue the opposing sides. That really distills down your thinking and clears it up. You mentioned when you first received the book, you take out your pen or pencil. Do you do anything else prior before opening page one? Do you, do you write down any thoughts of it or anything like that, or do you just dive right into the book? I hope. I hope it's not going to be a disappointment. I hope it's not. There are a lot of things out there in titles that are, there's just, there's no there there. And uh, to be direct, there are a lot of how-to books, how you can improve your life by my book and in seven steps, you'll change your life forever. Uh, um, there's not, there's no, there's oftentimes there's very little substance there. So, um, and my process, I came at this exact opposite. I was really seriously studying all these smart people. And no kidding, I was going to Krakow to look at Mozart autographs in Berlin to look at Mozart autographs. And uh, I would go to, to Florence to see what I could see there about, about Leonardo da Vinci. I've been in the Ambrosiana in Milan to look at facsimiles. They didn't allow me to touch any originals of Leonardo da Vinci, but I've seen them right up close in the, bo the books themselves are right you know in a case two feet from me um so i've really tried to get in there and really get into the essence of of the subject matter um and that's how i was going to come at this uh, just with the people and, and the materials and then you try to shop a book along these lines and every publisher and editor will say well we're we've kind of seen this before what we're interested in here are a few takeaways how can how can this book change your life well i was kind of disappointed in that because uh, i thought that might be a nonsense the shocking thing is 
and it sounds like a, a bold-faced pitchman here. The shocking thing is, at the end end of the process, lo and behold, I really came, my life really did change as a result of engaging the lives of these great minds, these great figures. Over time, I started to think, and I continue to think in radically different ways than I did at the outset of this particular project. Um, so if I say, uh, writing this book changed my life, it can change yours too. This is not just a slimy sales pitch <laughs> in, in my case. Yeah, I think it's true. Yeah, no, I, I, like I mentioned, got to explore the book this weekend and read the whole thing and definitely had some fascinating, interesting takeaways. Not only am I a big fan of genius and, and history and, and many of the legendary leaders throughout time, but some of those takeaways, it, it has me looking at life in, in a little bit different manner as well. Yeah. Like and don't he, don't try to be a genius. You're right. <laughs> you make everybody miserable. No, that's, that's, okay. that's go very ahead. true. So, sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, I even just want to know a little bit more about like where was this fascination for you? You you were teaching music. I want to know what really was it where you you said I'm going to go down this rabbit hole of understanding geniuses. Yeah, well. The thing that's always interested me is the biographies of people. I'm interested in literature and fiction, yes, but it's the biographies. It's the human aspect of this. And I can't explain. I can't explain why this is the case. It may be here. It is nature. It is genetics that's driving me here. It's the people oftentimes as much as the product or the artifact or the painting or the scientific theory uh, that excites me. What's going on in this person's mind? How do they do that? It's the people. Yeah, the people. I, I'm deeply interested in the people. Maybe that's why I was pulled to your work as well. You you defined genius a little while ago, but I'm also interested in just knowing what isn't a genius. I thought you did a good job pulling that out just to paint a clearer picture on, <laughs> on, on who actually isn't a genius when we think well, they are. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not a genius. I... Uh, <laughs> um, Great point. I, high IQ. Uh, how you know you think as well? So and so is a genius. She's so smart. She's she's a genius. You know she's got an IQ of 145, and she just pulled uh, two 800s or maybe three 800s on the SAT test. She's a, she's a genius. And the one thing I've learned over time, I really do think it's it's true. And I try to to discuss this with my uh, grandchildren, much to the consternation of their parents, my children, is that this high IQ, high idea of a high IQ score and a super high SAT score and a, or a super high ACT score, great scores in the ERBs, um, that may not be um, a, a reliable um, monitor or a marker of uh, of genius. Um, there are probably other things that are much more important to changing the world than a high IQ score. So in raw intelligence, smarts, whatever that is, they come in different forms and only a very small part of that is actually measured on a standardized test. We use them because they're standardized and they're very efficient testing a very limited type of type of thing. So what genius is not is a, a brainiac, for a, a, a a, a, a kind of stereotype of the brainiac with a high IQ score. In addition to the high IQ, you also s say how there's two different things here in terms of talent and then genius, correct? 
Yeah, I, I think lots of us are talented. I'm sure you are talented what you do, uh, Sean. I'm talented in some ways having figured out what I do, uh, but that's not genius. And as we've said before, there are successful people in the, there are geniuses in this world and there are successful people and we need them both. Uh, we need uh, the geniuses to change the world, to get us out of uh, dilemmas such as the current pandemic, for example. And we need uh, successful people to execute their ideas, uh, to reify their ideas, to bring their ideas into a pr practical um, form for everyday life. Uh, so a, a successful person is as a person who, well, well let's, let's start with the genius. The genius is a person who sort of thinks outside the box. That's the kind of paradigm there, thinking outside the box, uh, innovative, somewhat rebellious, and so on. A successful person has probably figured out how to make the box better or staying within the box and making it the very best possible box that it can be. Uh, and a successful person might uh, know how to um, play well within that box and make that box work for them. Maybe they get into an Ivy League school or they do well on the SAT test. They get into an Ivy League school and then they go on to become an investment banker or something like this or whatever the paradigm of excellence may happen to be to today. But I, I guess the point is that they are successful people. They've learned how to play the game. Geniuses are people who change the game. They really are game changers. Yeah, you've got one of those quotes I love, and I'm going to butcher whoever said it and also the quote. It might have been <laughs> Schumpner about uh, talent can hit a target no one, no one else can oh, yeah. hit. Genius can, can hit a target no one else can see. Yeah, that's um, Archer Schopenhauer, okay. German. No, German, no, you're, you're doing well. I have, I have trouble with that one, too. And I can't tell you how much time I have spent trying to track back the original to because it's, that philosophy is in three, that book was published in three volumes over a 30-year period in various editions. And when did he say it? Where did he say it? And where can, what edition do I find that original German? And what were the German words for it? And that's what a good scholar will do. And that's what I was trained to do. Um, but that's where that comes from. A person of talent can hit the target that no one else can hit. A person of genius can hit the target that no one else can see. Uh, in other words, think or see outside the box. No, I absolutely love that. One of the things I'm really intrigued by is just the point in time someone's living. And I'm wondering today with access to technology and how connected we are globally, is this a point in time where there's a likelihood to have more geniuses throughout the world? That's a very good question from a number of points of view. Is it a point in time where we're likely to have fewer geniuses hmm. than we had before? Now, a, a, a couple of point, a couple of thoughts here. One, uh, there's maybe a difference between genius, uh, uh, exceptional human accomplishment in the arts as a, and, and in uh, human relations. We'll call them the political science, politics, whatever you want to call it. There may be a difference between that and in science and technology. Um, to some extent, and again, this was a point that your uh, previous guest, uh, Matt uh, Ridley, uh, had um, emphasized, was that it's never been easier to get information because of the internet. And if um, one of the first steps in being a genius is to have experience and gather a great deal of information, uh, this is a great time to be alive, uh, as he said, because you can so quickly 
pull together so much information. He's absolutely right. He should tell the tale. 20 years ago, we'd all go into a library. It's a big advantage to be a student or a professor at Yale because you had this great library. Now that advantage has been um, equalized all around the world because everybody has access. Nobody goes into the Yale library to look at a book anymore. They're going for coffee. They're going to talk. That's all great. But go in and pull out a book off the shelf, look at the stamp, and the last time that book was taken out of there. You know, it's 20 years ago. Nobody's back of the stack of the book because it's all available online. So more and more information is now available. In theory, there should be more and more game-changing geniuses out there. The other interesting thing, however, is, and people ask uh, somewhat rhetorically, was Albert Einstein the last scientific genius? In other words, solo genius, the single individual. Because as time goes on, and it's exemplified by what's happening today with the coronavirus, um, it's the genius of the team that is supplanting the individual genius. It's the genius of the research lab. Think about we're now waiting for a vaccine for COVID, right? Okay, there's AstraZeneca out there, there's Pfizer, there's Moderna, there may be Merck, Johnson & Johnson. Uh, did, have we heard, Sean, have you heard on the news about uh, scientists so-and-so working at AstraZeneca? Um, Genius B working for uh, Mo Moderna. No, it's all a group of people. It's a, a whole research lab, maybe hundreds of people doing this. Why? Because maybe so, so much of the information um, is, is, or the information is so enormous that no one individual can control it all. So we need to have specialists that need to cooperate amongst themselves. So that's interesting to watch. Maybe in science and technology, uh, it's the genius of the team that's coming to the fore in this particular day in the day and age. And that would have been very different than, say, back in the day of Leonardo da Vinci, where he was working entirely by himself. You mentioned this amongst the team, and then you bring up specialists, which which has me wondering about the, the whole fox versus the hedgehog. The fox knows many things. The hedgehog knows one thing specifically. Yeah. So, so how do you view that now moving forward? Is it still more beneficial to be that fox, to be able to aggregate and pull from all these different domains? Well, I have, I have always been a great fan of, a great proponent of the fox. Go fox, go fox, go fox. <laughs> I'm not, I don't go around wearing a hedgehog sweatshirt and I don't have a hedgehog hat when I go to the hedgehog fox fox contest. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in the fox uh, because uh, even when you look at the, the transformative people around the world, you look at Mozart, you look at Picasso, you look at Einstein, think, well, Einstein was just a, um, a specialist in physics. No, Einstein knew a great deal about other things. He knew a great deal about uh, psychology, particularly about uh, philosophy. He knew a huge amount about music. Who is his favorite composer? Uh, Mozart. He said, if I were not a physicist, I would be a professional musician. He was a violinist. Uh, he wasn't a great violinist. He was once playing a string quartet, and they stopped, and he said, Albert, you have to learn to count. Um, but, but he was in there. He knew about it. He knew how how it worked and i think that and he he would he talks about how when he has a scientific block block a kind of writer's block for scientists he would put things aside and he would just go play mozart for a while 
Uh, it probably relaxed him. It probably took down some barriers that are blocking associative linkage in his brain. Relax, play Mozart. It's got this perfect patterning up there. He may be able to see patterns in, in the sciences that he didn't see up to that point. And back he would come. And he's, we're not making this up. His son, Hans Albert, comments on this a couple of times. Um, so that's it's that kind of thing. All of these A-list people, I think, whether it's Picasso, Mozart, Leonardo, Einstein, they are polymaths. They are autodidactic, self-teaching, curious polymaths. They want to know everything that they get their that they can get their hands on. You mentioned when he's having one of those scientific mental blocks, he'll he'll play the violin. What do you do when you're having one of those blocks and you're trying to open up the mind? Well, I have a theory about this, and it's and it's once again, it's the kind of thing, oh, this is such in the vernacular BS. Um, uh, there are things that you can do. Here's what I've learned to do. No kidding, it's true. Uh, relaxation is it? Well, you want to be a genius, get get out there and concentrate. Relaxation is hugely important for coming up with new ideas. Uh, when do we get? When do I get my best ideas? Um, there are there are two uh, streams here. One is the unconscious, and psychologists, neuroscientists have worked uh, through this, and I'm simply repeating in, in general terms what they've come up with. But the brain continues to operate and is thinking about things sort of subliminally, multitasking underneath there. Uh, and sometimes when we sleep, it is continuing to work. And sometimes when we wake up immediately after a deep sleep, um, the brain is continuing to work. And again, neuroscientists, they know all about these neurotransmitters, particularly acetylcholine, uh, and how it's in the bloodstream at particular times and can allow you to to be more creative if you capture those moments when you're you're um, accessing your subconscious and your barriers to creativity are all taken down and you can link ideas that hitherto had not been linked. When do you do that? Uh, particularly early in the morning, uh, uh, either by capturing a dream or just sitting there thinking about things in your mind. I could l run through a list of a dozen major scientific breakthroughs uh, and artistic breakthroughs by major figures uh, that uh, Beethoven's uh, Stravinsky, the very discovery of a set of colon, et cetera, et cetera, the periodic table um, were done as a result of, uh, of dr work accomplished during dreams. Paul McCartney, uh, a, a yesterday, the song came to him in a dream, he, he said. So well, first thing to do, get pen and paper and put it right next to your bed. Uh, shower, same thing, because you get in there first thing in the morning, it's probably 70% of the great ideas we had, according to one survey, come not at the office, but in the shower in the morning, keep pen and paper right next to the shower as well, because you can forget these things, you get your ideas. What else do I do? I try to relax by going for a walk. Um, you can do the same thing on the treadmill. Uh, that's fine. 
the only thing is you can't take your exercise very seriously. If you say, okay, look at my, don't look at your watch, say, okay, I've got, you know, to get to one mile, I got to get there by seven minutes. You see how old I am. That'd be a good day. Uh, nine minutes and uh, nine minutes. I got to get to the end of that mile by nine minutes. Let's get going. Legs got to push, 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 push. No, that's a total waste of time. If you want to be creative, you've got to just get in the flow, get into a nice pattern of movement and relax and just disassociate. Uh, and it, curiously, the same thing happens when listening to music. You don't want to listen to the lyrics. You just want to listen to the rhythm and go with the flow. The same thing happens if you go to a beach. You can sit there and just look at the waves and because it's this regular relaxing pattern. Or the number of people that have been in a rocking conveyance, whether it's Beethoven, whether it's J.K. Rowling, whether it's Walt Disney, who in some kind of a conveyance coach or train had a major insight because of the rocking, presumably because of the relaxing quality of the repetitive rocking motion of that vehicle has allowed them to have insights that they didn't realize were in there. Yeah, I love hearing about these. I, I try to tap into many of those. And it, it's funny, prior to knowing the, the benefits of the subconscious mind working at times, you can't take advantage of these. But then once I had discovered these, even if I'd wake up in the middle of the night, I'd almost sit there and just continue to think because of the, the interesting creative thoughts I could come up with. And, and similar during times of exercise, there, there's times I'm not trying to, to peak my heart rate because I'm trying right. to get in that slow, steady state zone where right. my mind can yeah. drift off. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting. You probably get these things too, you know, in the newspapers, these word scrambles where they give you six letters and you can't figure it out. I, I don't play with this very much. My wife does. And she'll look at this in the morning. She'll be, and then she'll go off and exercise and, and she'll come back out. Oh yeah, there it is. There it is. There it is. It's just that, that you're, you're not focusing, you're relaxing and, and you can just kind of have it all uh, come into place at that particular particular time. Yeah. So we're talking about defocusing. One of the things that, that brought up in the book and, and any really successful person I've been around, I've noticed there's times that when they need to focus, they can block out every extra thing and they can just get down and focus. What did you discover about this within the geniuses you've studied? I think it's, that's absolutely true. So that's the flip side of this. And in, in my book, I save those two chapters for the end. The penultimate one uh, is called, um, in, in basically, it re, now it's it relax. And the last one is called, now it's time to concentrate because you got to get the work product out the door. Okay, so you got to take those notes that you took early in the morning when you're relaxing and take them into your study. The one thing that I found studying the lives of all of these geniuses is this. A, there's no such thing as a lazy genius. They all are extremely hard working. Do they think of this as work? No, it is their passion. It's what they want to do. They may be running over people uh, all around them, just uh, treating them like roadkill in their personal lives. But nonetheless, they do this because they're obsessive. But what they all have, what they all have in common is a habit for work. So that's another hidden habit here. Get a habit for work. Now, the habits are all very different for the most part with each individual. They call them different things. They call, call I got to get in my flow today. I got to get in my ritual. Um, it could be an actual habit. Got to get in my pattern, whatever, whatever term you want to use. But And they get into a daily routine that is always the same. Why do they do that? 
they do that because it saves time. It saves psychic energy. Uh, there are no extraneous things that you have to, to deal with. Um, when you get to your work zone, then it's interesting what they have in that work zone. Uh, another thing that saves time is not to be distracted. Some people uh, disengage from all, say, technical things such as email or internet connectivity, and they'll just sit in there and write on a computer. Uh, so that's another thing, and one can take that to various uh, degrees of extreme. Uh, most most of us, of course, we need the internet to get information from, so we have to stay stay going back and forth. Uh, another thing I like to do, and I think others do as well, is put pictures of uh, photos of the people we love around us. I don't know why that is useful. I find it comforting. Um, I then put some pictures I have in my off study here. I could show you and reach for my Here, I'll reach for, that's no. <laughs> all right, you're not going to see it anyway. I'll reach for one uh, in which I, uh, I think leading the Yale commencement. They were kind enough when I retired to let me be the grand marshal of the Yale commencement. So there I am leading the Yale commencement. I have a picture of that. And I thought that was pretty cool that, well, I must not be a complete failure here. You know, each of us, we're trying to be creative. We're trying to do our own thing. But God, every morning you wake up and say, oh, this is, you know, you write a paragraph and you come back the next day. What could I have been thinking? This is doggerel. This is nonsense. You're worthless. This is a total waste of time. So you need these markers in your life to say, no. You're not a complete failure because look, you did that. Maybe you can do this again. And ultimately, also, we need in our in our lives inspiration. And I think when in our habit of work, it helps to have in the office people we admire. I'm reminded, and sometimes you can see uh, pictures, engravings of great people's offices. Um, there are one, there, uh, for example, of from Johannes Brahms, and he has in his office, standing over his piano, a huge engraving of Beethoven, sort of mm. Beethoven looking over his shoulder. With Einstein, he had three seminal, he had portraits, pictures of three seminal figures uh, in his life. Michael Faraday, James Clerk Maxwell, and don't ask me the third because I can't remember who. <laughs> Two who, out of three is good enough one. anyway. <laughs> okay, uh, it might have been Max Planck. I don't really, I don't really remember. But in any event, um, get um, uh, sort of tangible images of people you admire. I'm reaching over now just for fun and picking up a uh, kind of. Uh, a little statue here of Nikola Tesla, which I have right right over there, and you can attest because you're seeing it. Our audience is not, but you can attest to the fact that it's really, really there. So get um, support around you, get love around you, and get inspiration around you. I, I would love learning about your teaching process and and all the the years, the courses you've taught. I know you've taught even specifically on genius. What have you learned about uncovering these geniuses that have just helped you in your teaching process? Um, that uh, that's a good good question, great question. Because my approach to teaching has 
turned 180 degrees since I started out. Um, I started out by thinking that the model, I think I was watching other people and you always tend to imitate what your superiors do. So I was, was started out with the model of the so-called sage on the stage. Uh, remember what that is? You go into the classroom, the kids come in, um, some uh, inevitably uh, antiquarian white male ascends to the stage holding a yellow legal pad and begins to read notes, uh, academic scripture off of the book of wisdom here. Uh, meanwhile, the kids are falling asleep. In modern times, they'd be looking for shoes on their computer and the internet, uh, totally tuned out. Um, uh, and I think the seminal moment for me came when I was reading, of all things, a passage in, of Virginia Woolf in A Room of One's Own, which is a superb piece of, of writing and a superb piece of fiction. And I have my kids in the genius class read that every day. And it's a series, it's really a series of public lectures that she came. And she begins them by saying, ladies and gentlemen, I come to you tonight not to hand you a nugget of wisdom which you can wrap up in your notebook and take home with you. And boy, that really stuck in my mind. That's not what teaching is about. There are no such things as giving people a nugget of wisdom. So as time goes on, I began to see that, um, strangely enough, that the old Socratic method was far much more valuable, that you would throw out questions and you would have people, um, you, would, you would have a goal that maybe there is something that we could say approximates truth. Uh, you would have a goal and you would try to get people uh, to that goal through a series of questions. Um, as time went on, I began to refine that a bit. Yes, we need information. And there's a new book out by a gentleman named Hirsch that was reviewed recently in the Wall Street Journal. It doesn't really matter. I think, that, I think that's his name about education. And it says how we are messing up education because we're not teaching people enough facts. I would push back a, 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 about that. I would say it's very important to gather facts. All of these geniuses gather facts and they bring them in. You've got to know stuff. That's the first part of the creative process. You've got to have stuff in your head and then you've got to recombine it in new and exciting innovative ways. So the, it, yes, we need when teaching to get information out there. So as time went on, what I would do would be to develop a, um, a twofold approach. One, we would get the information out there with an assigned reading and uh, almost puerile as it seems, then they would come into class and we would have a quiz on a first thing. Every, every, every morning in the genius class, first uh, uh, eight minutes, we would have a quiz on that reading of the previous night. Okay, that means the facts are in there. Okay, we've got the facts. Now, let's have a go at it. Are the facts correct? Can you think of alternative solutions to those facts? How could those facts be combined in innovative new ways? How could someone who happened to be reared on a Navajo Indian reservation have a completely different interpretation of these facts? How can someone from Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn have a completely different view of all of this? What is truth? 
um, and it would it would be um, a, an argumentation. And this happened. I was able to do this a couple of times, and I, I, you know, as time went on, people big, took interest in this, and I would have to cap the class to, uh, at about a hundred because there was no more room in the room in which I was teaching, which I liked um, for that. Um, so these arguments would break out, and the arguments would become very uh, uh, animated and. Um, once it, it happened that I was, as this argument was going, I was able to just sneak out of the classroom with a side door. And I don't think they noticed. And that was the best class I ever taught. It's remarkable. It's, it's almost like your current day reading process where you're almost having the, the, these arguments against yourself. So you're seeing both sides. Is that somewhat on track there? I guess so. You know, again, Sean, it's not something I ever thought of. Maybe one, you have it's it's like me dealing with genius. You don't know you don't know what you're doing. It takes an outsider to examine you and to see what you're doing. Maybe do I have to pay you for this day? Am I going to get a bill from my psychiatrist, Sean Delaney, here <laughs> at the end of this session? I I hope not. He may be entitled to send me one, but uh, but uh, I wasn't expecting it. Yeah, no, I, I always love distilling and, and pulling out different threads and thoughts. Two more things I would love to hitting on uh, in terms of mm -hmm. geniuses, and, and these mm -hmm. are things that, that we've somewhat hit on, and I'm just so fascinated. And the first is going to be just that rebel mentality. And is, is that true amongst all the geniuses? They've got a little rebelliousness in them? They would have to, in a sense. If you're going to change the box, you've got to be able to see things outside the box. I think what really happened, you could call them the rebels, they're just annoyed. They're, they're annoyed by something that they see and they say, that's not right. Or it could be better than that. Why are they, why not do it this way? And whether it's a painting or a scientific theory, Einstein in effect said to Newton, he said it very polite and he realized he was borrowing greatly from Newton. But you know, what, what uh, Newton was saying, the theory of gravity, is just not quite right there. Um, what Picasso started painting with something as famous as Damoiselle d'Avignon, which is now the iconic piece in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, um, it would look crazy at the time, but that's what he thought was really involved in art. That's what he thought the message of art was. So uh, you could call them rebels, um, uh, you could call them outsiders. They are comfortable with being outsiders. They are comfortable with uh, not being immediately appreciated because they are so convinced that their vision of the world, what the world might be, is correct, that they are willing to persevere in the face of negativity and denial. Is that how the relationship with the risk evolves? where it, it, they almost don't view risk the same way because they have such a deep-seated belief? Wow. Um, that's, a very interest, that's a very interesting way of looking at it. I hadn't looked at it in that fashion. Um, excuse me, Sean. I want to phone into my editor. Uh, stop the presses. We've got to insert a new thought here. I hadn't really thought of, of that, is that there, the uh, correlation between self-confidence and risk. They can't believe that they're going to get it wrong. I, always, I was looking at it from the point of, well, these are just very courageous uh, people, that they realize that there are liabilities out there, uh, dangers out there, but they're willing 
to assume this liability or this uh, danger. It may be, as you were suggesting, that they don't see the dangers. They have such enormous self-confidence in their vision that they are able to pursue that vision not being aware of the dangers. They couldn't possibly be wrong. So this must be the right path. There is no risk here. I'm right. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll have to continue to monitor that against some of the, the current day geniuses, and and maybe in a, another hundred years we'll yeah. have to explore that yeah. one a little bit further. Yeah. Yeah. But there's three well, geniuses. That, yeah, that's a that's a good point, though. Sorry to interrupt, but that's a good point because with all of this, you know, as, as one of the criteria of of my definition of genius is duration. This has to last over a period of time. You can't be an overnight, you know, a five, have five minutes of, of success and everybody, buddy forgets you. Um, so over time, we'll have to wait. You're absolutely right, Sean. We'll have to wait and come. We'll, we'll reassemble in a hundred years and see how this is turning out. No, I would love to do that. So there, there's three geniuses that I've just been fascinated with for a while, and I would love to just hear your just short couple sentence paragraph uh-huh. riff uh-huh. on each one. And the first one being Einstein. Um, interesting figure, uh, a great mind, not necessarily a great human being. <laughs> a uh, externally a great human being, uh, concerned about the welfare of all, but internally within his own family, whether it was a daughter, an illegitimate daughter that he sired and simply uh, allowed to be forgotten, or whether it was his second of three children that he had institutionalized in Switzerland and never visited for the last uh, 10 years of his uh, life. Um, it's uh, and what he did with the the money that was supposed to go to Maliva Mararik, his um, his first wife. It, it's not a happy story in that regard. It brings up the issue of sort of public persona of the genius and private reality. Mm-hmm. So, uh, fa- uh, you know, fascinating person, just the go-to guy for a book on genius. But it points out some other things about genius. What about your music man Mozart? Um, love him. <laughs> if you were the, if there were one guy you'd want to invite to dinner, it would be Mozart. Why? Because a, uh, contrary to what you might think, he was a polymath. He knew a lot of stuff about a lot of different things, particularly mathematics. Um, he was enormously curious. He was enamored with puzzles and games. He was a prankster. He was hugely funny. Uh, just riffing on jokes uh, instantly and plays on words because he could speak five languages fluently. He was a great dancer. He was apparently a great lover. <laughs> so, uh, oh, and by the way, did I mention he happened to be maybe the finest musical composer who ever lived? Um, so uh, I think it'd be Mozart because if he wasn't telling a joke, he could hop over right over to the piano and entertain you in that fashion, and you'd be delighted to sit there for hours. Yeah, no, being honest, I haven't actually even do- dove into any of Mozart's biographies or, or writings about him. I, I listen to his music quite frequently uh, when, I, when I'm trying to read. But uh, hey, Sean, I, I, got, I got a great tip for you. Just go watch the film, film Amadeus. It's not absolutely correct about Mozart, uh, but, you know, it's an old film now. It's now 35 years old, but it did win 12 Academy Awards, which is the highest number, I believe, ever accumulated by one film. Amadeus, about 1985. Go watch that. It's a quick entry, quick and fun and hugely entertaining entry into Mozart. I'll definitely have to do that. And then what about Leonardo da Vinci? Um, 
if I were to say who is the, it would be a tie, I think, between who are the greatest genius in, in your experience, and I'm dealing here essentially with geniuses in the Western, history of Western culture, who are the two greatest geniuses that you ran into in your study? I would say coming in, at number in second position would be William Shakespeare, because all of the human mind, all of the human experiences, the loves, the hates, the envy, the failure, the hopes, they're all in there. And he knew them. And he is able to, it is extraordinary. Uh, we could almost sign off, quit the rest of our lives and just go read Shakespeare, because it would save time. It's, 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 it's all in there. And in first place, coming in first place as the world's all-time unbelievable genius, it would have to be Leonardo da Vinci. Um, first of all, he had no education. He was an illegitimate child, and he could not be educated in traditional terms. In retrospect, that may have been a huge advantage because he had to go out there and figure out all, all of this stuff himself. And he tried to figure out everything. He'd go up to the tops of mountains in the Apennines there, and what would he find? He'd find fossils of fish. Fish? How did fish bones get up here? How old is this earth? So he's interested in geology. He's interested in uh, visual aspects of distance, uh, perception. He's interested in zoology, uh, in that he, he studying animals and figures out, lo and behold, that when a um, dragonfly flies, its back two wings are up higher than the front two wings. Who knew that? Who can see that? How do you have this kind of power of observation to know, to know that? Uh, and on and on it goes. He took apart things. He took apart machines to figure out how they work, and in so doing, figured out how new machines work. And most importantly, he took apart the human body um, through his dissections, and he totally rewrote, although people at the time didn't know it, he totally rewrote the uh, human, the textbook of human anatomy, how the heart works. It actually has four chambers, not two chambers. He identified arteriosclerosis, uh, for example. He figured out that we actually see by uh, light coming into our eyes rather than a kind of flashlight effect with light going outside of our eyes. Um, my, fam my favorite quote of, uh, of Leonardo da Vinci, and, and maybe I should stop with this, is the following. He writes in one of his notebooks, read me well, O reader, for you will never see my likes again. Hmm. And that sounds like hubris. In my opinion, he was right. Yeah, I, I've had deep fascinated with Leonardo for a long time now. So I, I love that riff right there, getting to hear more about him. A couple more questions I would love knowing, though, because in your book throughout, you, you link to so many different sources, and you're clearly so widely read. Have there been just a couple books throughout your life that have had tremendous impact for you? Um, books that really, I think... Um, I think two books. One was it seems a strange book and nobody ever really reads. It's called The Measure of Reality by Alfred Crosby. Measure of Reality by Alfred Crosby. Alfred Crosby was um, a biologist, epidemiologist who taught at the University of Texas. But he was not a medievalist. Uh, 
uh, and he was not necessarily trained as a mathematician, but he writes about, this is all about quantification in the West uh, at the end of the Middle Ages, how the Western world came to see the world differently than the rest of the world at that particular time, than from the Mideast or the Far East. And it had to do with bringing in uh, measurement and measurement in terms of distances, measurement in terms of organ pipes, measurement in terms of just calculation so that commerce could develop. So that's The Measure of Reality by Alfred Crosby, a little known book, but it always had, uh, gave, it was very impressive in my life. Another book that impressed me and that I think influenced me was strangely enough, James Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Um, because it sort of t gives you a sense of what it would, I mean, Joyce is clearly a genius. <laughs> if you could just write a portrait of an artist as a young man, uh, you'd have to be a genius because so many people have read it. I have read it and it influenced my life. It changed the world, at least it changed my world. Uh, because it gives you a, a sense of what an average, in this case, usually above average person goes through in the course of their development, um, experiences and suggests that these are things that, can, that happen and these are things that can happen. And if they happen to him, they could happen to you. So it's a, it's a, a, a springboard in a sense for people launching into life as they begin their life's journey. So that's James Joyce, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Two books I've never read, so I, I love getting new recommendations. Final one, though. If you could only listen to one more piece of music the rest of your life, what would that be? Ah, oh, that's a good question. Um, coming in, once again, number two uh, would be... You know, we, we all uh, love Beethoven, and we all think of Beethoven as the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth this year, 2020. We all love Beethoven. And I suppose the one that piece of Beethoven that we all know is the Ode to Joy of the Ninth Symphony. Okay, so we all know that. Um, uh, but there's another movement in that symphony, another section of that symphony, the slow movement. That's very, very beautiful. But uh, and I think that it is it's slow, it is majestic, it is thoughtful, it is humane, um, and it, it is restful. So, in terms of what are you going to be listening to, Craig, as you check out of this world, that would be number two. Number one, as when I check out, is going to be the following. I have now been married <laughs> happily for 42 years to my beloved wife, Sherry. There was a piece written by Richard Strauss called Im Abendrot, In the Red Glow of Sunset. And it's about sunset being used as a metaphor for life and the love between these two individuals. Um, and it was written as a song dedicated to his wife, who was to whom he had then been married, I think, fifty some years, Pauline. Um, and it's exquisitely beautiful. I would write that write that down. It, it's a late flamboyant, um, romantic style, but it's it's both heroic, it's both soothing, it's both exhilarating and exquisitely beautiful. And it, it as I say. Um, you in life you cannot really appreciate beauty unless you share it with someone whom you love um 
and I think that's I think that's true. So maybe you have to listen to this with somebody else, or at the very least, you have to listen to this thinking of someone else, knowing mm -hmm. that that's someone else, either in uh, in your imagination or in reality, actually exists. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure there's a, a better place to wrap up there. Craig Wright, the book is The Hidden Habits of Genius Beyond Talent, IQ, and Grit, Unlocking the Secrets of Greatness. This was a book I really did enjoy. Of course, we're going to have it linked up in the show notes and, and provide the listeners every available access to, to purchase the book. Anything else you want them knowing about the, bo the book or yourself? Um, no, I feel obliged because there's a wonderful team working behind me once again say, if you need it, all you have to do is go to Amazon and uh, punch in the search box there, Craig Wright Genius, and the book will come up. That's one thing I'd like to say. The final thing I th would like to say is thank you, Sean, very much for inviting me. I had fun. I hope I don't get, get arrested, and I hope one day or another you will invite me back again. So no. thanks to you, Sean. No, bye thank bye. you. This is a true pleasure. Once again, thanks for joining us on What Got You There. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.